This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I have a quote in my studio that says, the truth is an assembled thing. And I kind of look at history in the same way. Right now, you know, I was taught a a very narrow sliver of history. And what I've tried to do in, in my work and my life is to try and open up my understanding. Let's stretch it out. What, okay, so I know these three things happened, but what else happened? What else was going on? Let's talk about all of these other contributors to that moment. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Client hypothetical. This is the term pioneering architect and designer Eileen Gray used to classify the many modernist masterpieces she designed in the absence of actual paid commissions. She was simply making things because that was what she was made to do. Gray now stands alongside other towering talents whose underrecognized body of work were later exalted by their art world peers. First among Gray's admirers is artist Kim Schoenstatt, who spent the past two years creating an entire exhibition inspired by the way Gray essentially designed her way through the many challenges laid in her path. Enter slowly the legacy of an idea, which opened last fall in Art Center's Mullen Gallery, paid homage to Eileen Gray as heroine of 20th century modernist design, despite the fact that her work was often misattributed to her male collaborators and counterparts. Indeed, for much of her life, E1027, the house she designed in the south of France, was credited to superstar designer Le Corbusier, who did little to correct the record. Shining a light on Gray's legacy was a task tailor-made for Kim, an artist best known for her mashup drawings, layering elements of architecture and history. She's also demonstrated an equally steadfast commitment to moving the needle toward gender parity in today's art world through her Now Be Here project. I was particularly fascinated by the idea of an artist who creates a body of work based on the struggle she shares with an artist from another era. It's an act of deep empathy and bravery and a perfect example of how adversity and creativity often coexist on the path toward redemption. Please enjoy my conversation with Kim Schoenstatt. Hi, Kim. Welcome to Change Lab. I'm delighted you're here and really excited to talk about your work. I've, I've loved learning about you and all that you're doing. Thanks for having me, Lauren. It's a delight to be on the program. 
I actually wanted to start our conversation today with the focus on the idea of legacy. You know, the show that you have at Art Center, and we'll get into that a little bit later, is Enter Slowly, the Legacy of an Idea. And we'll talk about the Enter Slowly part at another point in the conversation. But I really wanted to focus on the legacy of an idea because I'm interested in how you take ideas and follow through with them. In fact, I even believe I, I read somewhere or heard you say something that you're interested in how an idea travels in time. So I'm really interested in that kind of temporal element of your work and how you map it and how you follow it through. One of the benefits of architecture that I'm finding is it not only is a memory of place in terms of structures, like the physical the, the construction of a city, right? What does a city look like in terms of its buildings? But then there's also the history of what happens inside that building. And what I'm finding so interesting is when buildings change, right? Like I did this at the Prague Biennale, and one of the buildings there was a building that was a government building to begin with. And then the pink revolution happened, and then it was Radio Free Europe. So just this one building has these two really important functions for society. And I think that's a really interesting way that architecture really comes alive. And what is its legacy, right? This structure, this husk, this thing that you've built as an architect, then gets imbued with all of these different histories and lives. Right, right. So are are you motivated? Are you compelled by kind of unpacking these stories embedded in these places and in these cultures and this history, interested in playing with them to find out what they're going to say? Yeah, that's the fun part. Like when I did this project in, in the Bahamas, it was on Nassau. And Basically, we had a roundtable discussion where the curator there brought in all of these different thinkers and and citizens and and artists and professors and architects and historians. I mean, you name it, he brought them to the table. And they just sat down and said, okay, go look at this, go look at this, go look at this, go look at this, go look at this. And, And I had basically five pages of places to go on this tiny island. And what resulted was a piece which really kind of contained all of these personal perspectives of histories. And so it it was interesting to me also because the the piece actually ended up in at the SLS Bahamar, which is a ho- a fancy hotel. And it's behind the reception desk. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things that happened was then, The people who are sitting there, the concierge who are sitting there, who are guiding, they are the guides, right? They are the people you go to where you're just like, gosh, I really would love to have this kind of experience. What do I do? Then they have this historic sort of this piece behind them, which points to all of these places throughout the island, which their their fellow citizens have have contributed towards. So it is kind of an interesting way of working where I'm having a constant conversation with the locals and they're contributing to the sort of pieces of their personal moments of the histories of the place. And that's that's where it gets really exciting for me. But then you get then you get like alternate histories, right? Which then sheds interesting light on the whole notion of legacy anyway, right? We typically think of legacy as a 
as a more monolithic kind of thing, but in fact, it has nuance and multiple dimension to it. And part of bringing out a legacy is bringing out its various parts and its nuances and its different flavors, which I think is really relevant to how I personally respond to your work, to be honest. Thank you. You know, I have a quote in my studio that says, the truth is an assembled thing. Mm. And I kind of look at history in the same way. That right now, you know, I was taught of a very narrow sliver of history. And what I've tried to do in, in my work and my life is to try and open up my understanding right let's let's stretch it out what okay so i know these three things happen but what else happened what else was going on right. let's talk about all of these other contributors to that moment um and that's that does get interesting and i think that's one of the things that was really exciting about the show too and getting to know eileen gray and her work and her life was this sort of idea that like sure what architects do we know of that time period? We know the big ones, but let's fatten it out. Let's see who else was around, who else was working, what else was happening. So another way I thought about talking about your work, again, generally to give listeners a sense of who you are, is... There's a really interesting way, again, this is just my response, in which there's that which informs your work, the history, community, social context, place that we've been talking about. But then there's also the way in which the work takes form in these wall drawings, in these juxtapositions of 3D and 2D, of the real and the fantasy. And if I might say, there's a real sense of humor to a lot of your work, too, that I, I actually appreciate, at least. I found it to be humorous in a, the best way possible. And I'm wondering if that kind of configuration of the, you know, the informing of it and the taking the form of it is a relationship that is resonant for you. Oh, absolutely. And the humor is really important. Um, I have fun. And the beautiful thing right now is that like, I, since I'm still rather two-dimensional, I don't have to pay attention to gravity. So I can create these impossible structures and I can make things happen that wouldn't really ha happen. But visually, I could make them happen, right? Like, so my process begins with, with looking at a piece of architecture or looking at a piece of sculpture and then breaking it back down into line. I make a hand-drawn line drawing and then I make a transparencies and then I have this giant light table and I'm very old school at that point still, where I'm just mashing up the transparencies on the light table until it looks about right. And then I draw it. And then I make about 20 of these because I always get one part right. And then another part, and then it's not quite right over here. So I kind of, each drawing kind of informs the next. But it's it's that mashup where I can kind of really start weaving things together. And I definitely think of it in terms of weaving. I'd like to go on to talk about some specific projects that'll help ground some of these ideas for the listeners, I think. But before I do, I just wanted to ask you this question that we're exploring in this season of the podcast, in this season of Change Lab, the relationship of creativity or the creative act as a means toward kind of maybe a healing or achieving better balance or writing something. 
And it seems entirely resonant to what you do, but I'm wondering how you think about that in this kind of way in which you deal with community and history and place, et cetera, and architecture. Yeah, I think that's really appropriate. And and it's absolutely how I work. The interesting thing to me about, like there's, to me, in my mind, right, there's these two big moments of my career path, my sort of working. There's the Now Be Here project, and then the other project being Enter Slowly, the legacy of an idea. Both of those projects, I was just a little bit pissed off. Like something just kind of got under my skin and I had something, I, I had a clarity of vision because I was just sort of like, mm, that's, that's messed up. Like, I think we can, maybe we can do something about this. The Eileen Gray project, the Enter Slowly, the Legacy of an Idea was absolutely rooted in this, in that moment when I was just like, wait a second, this is messed up. Like, she's incredible. Why is she so buried, you know, and, and sort of like mentioned in passing in architecture school? Like, why is her life and work not more celebrated? Why is it that we have knockoffs of her side table and nobody's like, oh, this is a knockoff of an Eileen Gray side table? They're like, oh, this is just this thing, you know, and oh, somebody did it. That's the context in which I want certainly want to explore that project. Maybe before we do, though, there's a couple of projects I want to ask you about and to to share with the listeners because I think it'll it's a kind of wonderful preparation to get into the Enter Slowly project. So the first one is which I loved is Exercises in Perspective Number Three, the one for the Shimento Contemporary at the 2018 Volta Air, Art Fair in New York and. There's so much in that. And I wonder if you could just talk about that project, what was behind it. And I think there's so many dimensions of it that will allow uh, the listeners really to get a great sense of, well, really who you are and what you're trying to do. Uh, that was an incredible project. That was sort of an artist dream moment, right? When your gallery is like, hey, let's go do this totally bonkers thing at an art fair. <laughs> and, like, and what the project was is I in literally four hours, slapped up a wall drawing, which was a whole feat of, of organization of itself. And then we invited people to add perspective lines. So if you think of an art fair booth as three 12-foot walls, there's left, right, and center. There's a floor that is covered with sort of a tight wool knit sort of really rugged rug on the floor. So we had gray rug on the floor, we had left, right, center walls, and I could do whatever I wanted because they were kind of going to get torn down when the show was done. We invited people to add their perspective lines through using a basically a blue wool string. And I would put a pin where they would direct me to put a pin in the drawing. And then the line would come out and attach wherever they saw fit. And what was interesting to me that happened in that project was it wasn't just the perspective lines of the building, right? I'm playing with this word of perspective. Is it the architectural? Is it the drawing perspective? Is it the architectural perspective? Is it their personal perspective? Is it the perspective of somebody sitting inside of the buildings that have been drawn perspective? Like, whose perspective is it? The interesting thing that happened with that project was 
as lines were drawn, as lines were pulled, as lines were added, each line became that person's individual perspective line. And so what we started having was interactions of the lines. And my rules were really simple. You could lift up, you could push down, you could add, you could connect, but you could never remove. You could never remove somebody else's perspective. And that was 100% the guideline to the community. And so it really became this crazy, amazing community of perspectives. And people would come back and this one guy came and he was asking about it. And, and he said, so I want my line to go start in this, let's say, upper left area and then go to this lower right area. But I don't want to pull anybody else's line down. I don't want to put pressure on anybody else's perspective. And that was a really interesting moment to me that, that what these lines were symbolizing was not just the visual sort of like what you're taught in architecture school of like, you know, or, or drawing or art school of like a literal perspective line, right? These were personal. This was a community conversation. And what he was trying to do was to navigate other people's perspectives without hurting them. I think it also, if I might say, gathers up a lot of what we were just talking about in terms of how you create conversation, how you bring something forward and allow it to kind of take shape and take form and try to be really careful about that which could get eclipsed or silenced or buried or taken away. And the result of it, I think, is really powerful and, th and that the community made it on your inspirations is very beautiful to me. I, I really do encourage our listeners to take a look at this project. It's beautiful. And, and so now, speaking of communities and about celebrating communities and empowering communities, let's talk about the Now Be Here project. And if you could give a little background on it from 2016, I believe, when it began and follow its trajectory, talk about the legacy of an idea. It's an incredible legacy. Yeah, Now Be Here. That Oh, man. So the idea started at... 2016, Hauser and Wirth had just built their new gallery space, which many Los Angeles people refer to as more of a museum space, which will give you the scale of this space. Um, their first show was called Revolution in the Making, and it was an exhibition of women sculptors. And it was a great show, an incredible show. And one thing that stuck with me was when one of the curators was talking about how they could have included so many other people, right, that it was actually really challenging to kind of narrow down who was getting to have this moment, right? And I was friendly with Andrea Stang, who is the head of um, education at, the, at that gallery at the time. And she did a walkthrough of the show. And I went up to her afterwards and just had this kind of like chutzpah kind of moment where I was just like, I'm just going to throw it out there and see what happens. And I was like, 
hey, what do you think about inviting all of the other women artists in Los Angeles who aren't in the show to come and do a large group photograph? You have this beautiful courtyard. We could just do it real quick. Like it would take maybe a couple hours. And what do you think? And, and she was like, yeah, let's do it. I was like, oh, snap. I got, I got two months. She's like, how about August? And this was June. So I tapped on my previous skills for a long time. I was John Baldessari's studio manager. And so I have a lot of sort of, it's like my latent registrar in me that loves organizing and loves binders and spreadsheets and all of these things. And so I just started making lists and and realized that it had to be a community project. It had to be not we could have a we could start with a certain seated list right we where we just gather all the names we troll through all of the you know gallery websites and pull all the women artists out there and go to their websites and grab their emails and so i made a list andrea made a list aaron who's the head of pr there at that point did made a list i think eva made a list everybody like everybody was contributing into this and those were just artists so then we made a list of curators Because one thing that I know is that there's LA is such a huge town. There's no way that I would know everybody. And I I just can't. I'm a a working mom, you know. So the first thing was to create these three lists and be as complete as we possibly could. And then basically send out a chain letter that said, hey, we want to invite you to participate. Please forward this on to anybody who might be interested. The concept was basically that as people then get the invite, they could check the RSVPs and see who wasn't on the list and then poke them and say like, hey, you should go to this. Um, And it took off. And we ended up with 700 something attending. And it was beautiful. It was a moment in the art world where, you know, we were fully present with each other. And this was something that I was really aware of because I was still taking care of a young child. My mom had just passed in 2012. And I was very aware of how disconnected I felt to the art world at that point, because I had been such a caretaker that I really wanted to reconnect. And I really was finding it hard to be fully present and fully available for everybody. So this was a sort of way for me to feel reconnected with my community, but also kind of make a a little bit of a statement. Because having worked for Baldessari for so many years, I worked for him for what, 96 to 2012. And, you know, I would constantly hear curators talking to him and saying, there just aren't any good women artists in LA. Or there just aren't any good women sculptors, or there just aren't any, I, you know, they just don't, they're not there. And, you know, our response was generally like, you're not looking, you should take a deeper look around. But then the concept with the photo, you know, also refers back to one of the early Baldessari's pieces, like seeing is believing, right? You can't look at that photo and then say, they're just not there. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's so powerful just to see that sea of faces, of bodies, of presence, of power, really. It's beautiful. Yeah. And it's there's something really powerful about being seen. 
And the New York Times was there and the LA Times was there. And there were places that were going to document this moment beyond just us and help us get it into the world. Um, that was really important. That was really not just to the artist, but also, you know, to to me that like, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this. Like, let's also have a press strategy. Let's also reach out and see if we can, you know, push this into the world. And then the whole thing kind of snowballed, right? Then the project then traveled to New York. It then traveled to Miami and then ultimately to Washington, D.C. Which for me, again, goes back to those threads, the the web that was created by those people. I think that the parallels of the two projects are really, really interesting. Let's turn to enter slowly the legacy of an idea and, and uh, spend some time talking about that show. And maybe to enter into it, if you could, just let the listeners know what it was. Tell us about the show. Tell us about Eileen Gray, E1027. So in 2019, I had two large projects. And basically, I had kind of made my nut for the year. I was like, okay. I've made my money. I can take a breather. I've worked my ass off. I'm fine. Let me just research. I just need to research. And the interesting thing about my work is because I'm usually responding to a place and responding to things that have been built, the things that have been built are generally by men. And so I wanted to be more purposeful in my research and I wanted to find out more about women architects. And I wanted to kind of go into it without knowing where I was going. Um, so I'm a stack reader at the Getty Research Institute, which means I can call up books in their collection. They happen to have an incredible collection of architecture books and or books on architecture. And I just typed in women architects and I got like 30 books. And so I was like, okay, throw those on a shelf for me. And then I would just go up to the Getty, you know, drop the kid off at school, go up to the Getty, do my research, go to pick up, and then come home and kind of digest what I'd seen. And Eileen Gray kept coming up. There were a few books about her. They all told slightly a different story. And I was like, wait a second, what's happening here? And then the architecture itself and the, the designs, her rug designs, the furniture designs, everything got really interesting really quickly. And I just kind of came obsessed. And so how did the show itself come about? So the obsession started with me making little models because I couldn't figure out. There are certain pieces of her furniture where the books that I was accessing didn't explain it or didn't. I didn't have the right photograph of angles and I'd never seen some of this furniture. And I was really intrigued by two pieces. There was one in the living room, in the salon, and it was a side table. And it was this funny little side table that balanced on one foot and had four different materials and was just absolutely each had two different heights to it. It was kind of crazy. And I started making little models just using, you know, like train model materials. 
So I had an, uh, invited Julie Joyce and Christina Valentine to my studio to have a studio visit. And so they came in and we were, they were like, okay, we're kind of, we're interested in doing a show. And I was actually pitching the exercise in perspective piece. I was like, we should do this piece. I just did it. It's so cool. And it's, you know, at the school. And they're like, wait a second, what are these? And then I started talking to them about all of the research that I had done on Eileen Gray and how I really didn't know which where where it was going and how, you know, I was kind of envisioning these pieces as being sort of chrome like her pieces, but really talking about the messed up things that happened to her in her life and her work. And and they were like, oh, actually, we really want to do this show. So that's, that's how the whole thing kind of came about. So tell us about, specifically about E1027, tell us about just what you uncovered. I mean, it's like a ghost story in a way. I mean, the vandalism of it and the drugs and the orgies and the murders and the, I mean, it's, it's all of which, as you point out so powerfully, obscures something very important. And that is who her spirit and who she was and her, her own brilliance and her, her, her light in all of that. So tell the listeners about this place. Okay, so E1027. This is a house. In 1926, Eileen Gray and her then lover, Jean Badovici, had this land, but because she was a woman and because she was an Irish national, she couldn't own property. So she put it into his name. And then he was really more of the architect. He taught her how to make architectural drawings. And he had a magazine called L'Architecture Vivant. He was friendly with other architects, including Le Cabousier. And so she had this vision for the house, and she basically designed it and built it herself. She, I mean, she literally was schlepping rocks from the train station. She mixed her own concrete and poured it. And she and Jean Badovici broke up he got the house because it was his name. Even though she paid for everything and did everything and it was really her design. And the thing about the house that's really incredible is she really spent time considering the location and considering where the light would fall, how the furniture was positioned, there's little jokes throughout the house. Like the house has stencils of words throughout. It has specific places to put things. It's really considered, she really considered how you were going to be using the house and how you were going to be living in the house. And that would determine the function and what the furniture looks like. I mean, a great example would be the, the, her quite iconic side table. It's an adjustable side table. It's round. It has a single pole on one end, and then it has a foot, which is a semicircle. It has an opening, and the opening is because her sister liked to have breakfast in bed, and she needed a table that could scooch into the bed, go up and down depending on her position, but the, the foot would need to go around the foot of the bed. So. Even that kind of construction was incredible. 
the house then takes a bit of a wild turn. She breaks up with Badavici. Badavici remains friends with Corbusier. Corbusier being quite the egoist and quite a character. He loves the house, right? He's infatuated with the house. He's so infatuated with the house. He, at some point, he convinces Badavici that to allow him to paint murals throughout the house. And it's not just one mural, it's like one, two, three, four, five, six, six or so murals or six or less murals. And it's all over, like inside, outside, above the desk, in the salon, in the entryway, in the dining room, like in the outside downstairs area. Like it's really quite invasive. and. The thing that struck me about that was just the gall, right? Like, if somebody did that to any of his structures, I don't think it would sit that well with him. But somehow, for him to do it, it was okay. And it was interesting, I had a little bit of a deep conversation with this architecture curator, and we were kind of trying to understand, like, was it a love thing? Or was it not a love thing? Or it gets really complicated. Well, it's interesting that you say that, actually, because I have my own questions about that famous story. Clearly, as you point out, a kind of act of, you know, vandalism in one way. But what? why? Was it some revenge? Was it some jealousy? Was it just pure destructive sexism? We don't know, of course, but I'm interested in your own sense of it. I think it was all of that and... I think the, the, the primary layer was ego. I get the genuine sense as though he really loved the house. Like he, it's a really complicated, abusive relationship, right? Like he, I think for Cabousier, what was going through his mind was he was honoring, he was gracing the house with his beautiful art. And yet let's look at it from a different perspective. That's messed up. So I think it's a really complicated thing. I think I look at it clearly as dominance. Hmm. It's an act of dominance. He's dominating the house. He was also a nudist. He preferred to paint naked, which you can read in what you want with that too. So that here he is, Starker's painting murals on the house. I, I definitely read that as a dominant act and an act of basically marking his territory. For him at the time, how was he looking at it? I would actually venture to guess that it's a, a, a complicated thing, right? That he he really did feel as though he was gracing the house with a gift. I don't get the feeling as though he was he was mean in doing it. I get the feeling as though he really was so self-absorbed that he was really not empathizing with the other architect. Yeah, that's so interesting to me. And I really appreciate that that nuanced insight. So let's now fold Kim into the conversation. So now you're doing this show, the, the Enter Slowly series. I'm interested in how you folded in the Sightline series and the Block Plan series. And I mean, it's just, there's so many dimensions to this show. And in the spirit of what we were talking earlier about how, you know, maybe there's a, a bringing things into balance or a writing of things. I see this so evident in the work that you did and what you tried to bring forward. And 
because listeners should know there's the story goes on with this place with uh, Nazis and and drugs and murders and things like that, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the house just to kind of give the two second history. So, house is built, Corbusier, Corbusiers. <laughs> then we have the war. We have World War II, which happens, which it's used as target practice by Nazis, destroyed by Americans from the inside. Then there is a new owner who the house becomes basically a drug den, and then there's a murder, and then there's vandalism. So by the time the house gets sort of to the point where people are like, oh my God, we should really do something about this, it's a mess. Like, it is graffiti all over the place, built-ins torn out. The only things that are really kind of looking great, um, ironically, are the Cabousier murals. But again, the sort of the nuanced view that I have towards him also stems from the house. One of the main reasons the house was preserved was because they wanted to preserve his murals. So it's a messed up relationship, right? Like if the murals weren't there, I don't know if they would have put the same energy and and funding into preserving the house. Mm. And so your question about let's get to the show. So the show is not just about the house. The house was my entry into Eileen and her world and her work. But the, the exhibition, I really thought of it in terms of three parts of her work. We have the architecture, which is represented in a wall drawing. We have the furniture, which is represented in the two sculptures. And then we have the rug works, which is represented in the paintings, the Enter Slowly series. But I also call them sort of conversations, getting back to your previous point of conversations. Tell me about your relationship with Eileen Gray now, whatever you care to share. I'm kind of fascinated with that because you entered into a conversation, a dialogue with her. You were able to shine light on work that had been in the shadows, on her own creative spirit that seemed to have been lost. But I'm interested in the personal kind of connection now that you have with her having gone through that process, how you see her, how you see yourself, how you learn from each other in a way. You know, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it until now, but it it is very much the same relationship that I had with Baldessari. You know, it's sort of like a mentor. You know, with John, I was working in his studio. I was working on his archives. I was getting to know his work. And I learned a lot just by getting to know the work and diving into the work. And the same with her. I learned a lot. She's definitely a mentor. I learned a lot from her history and reading about her and getting a little pissed off at how history had wronged her. I learned a lot about design just by studying her designs and trying to figure them out because they're not easy. Like, they look easy is the thing. She makes it look like, oh, snap, I just did this, 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 this. And then you're like, wait a second. 
there's some engineering going on here. So, you know, my relationship to Eileen is is definitely a mentor, but also inspiration. You know, it's just sort of like role model a little bit. I love the way that she had this indomitable spirit. I love that anything she put her mind to, she did. And she had a sort of uh, confidence and a uniqueness to kind of just going for it, right? Like she she was a balloonist. She accompanied Latham on one of his channel, like across the channel ballooning rides. And she was one of the first women to have a car and be able to drive it. She was an ambulance driver during the war. Like wow. that's a feisty lady. Absolutely. Absolutely. Where society is telling her she can't do these things too. Yeah. So uh, as a kind of wrap up, do you feel um, that something was healed? Do you feel that something was set right or at least maybe on its way to being set right or balanced a little bit more maybe from this for you? Oh, for me, yeah, for me, for sure. I feel like I, I feel like I did her right. I told her story as best I could, but I'm an, I'm also an artist, right? I'm not trying to tell you her history. I'm just trying to share her, and and to share some of her ideas and sh- and share some of the metaphors that you know we share in common. And that's yeah. I mean, I think I think I did. I'm thrilled with the show. I could not be more excited about the show. And it's a testament also to the curators that they saw something and a direction where I needed to go and pointed me and pushed me into it, right? I was wanting to lean back onto older work and they were like, no, you're going to push forward into here. And I was like, yes, and let's go for it. Um, So do I feel good about about Eileen, I feel great about Eileen. You know, you use the phrase, well, I'm an artist and you're not a historian, you're not writing a book about it, or you're not trying to set things right through any other means, but what your own kind of creative engagement with the material, with the ideas, with your own sense of all those kinds of things that we talked about, you are mapping and tracing somebody's idea. And it's powerful that a woman in Los Angeles and almost a hundred years later is engaged in that very fruitful, beautiful conversation and bringing out parts of a story and part of a creative spirit that otherwise we wouldn't understand. But seeing it through you and with you and in your own creative endeavors brings life to that show that I think is very, very beautiful. And I'm grateful that we at Art Center had the opportunity to, to do the show because I think it, it, it was incredibly meaningful to the students to see just what I described and to see your strength that way and come through in conversation with Eileen Gray. So thank you for that. And thank you for today. Totally my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Lauren Mahoney, editor Emily Van Bergen, 
and post-production supervisor and production consultant, Christopher Olin. Please take a moment to support us. You can do this by heading to Spotify or Apple Podcasts to rate and review our show. And while you're at it, share us with someone who is curious about the creative process. That's it for this week on Change Lab.